My name's Landon. I'm the co-founder of Project Ren, which is basically a website where you can go to to calculate, understand, and offset your carbon footprint. So we basically started Ren because we wanted to make it easier to do something about the climate crisis. We're myself and my two co-founders. We were students going to school at USC, and it felt like we could either become a full-on climate activist and like make our career all about the climate, or we could do this really little stuff. Like we could start using reusable straws, or like buy things that are more sustainable, or go vegetarian. These shifts that felt really incremental. So we started thinking about maybe there's a lot of people like us who are looking to take a little bit of action, but they don't know what to do, and they want it to be easier. And that's why we we started Ren. I think we have a, a long ways to go still. We just started a year ago, and this is like our our first real jobs or the start of our career coming out of college. So we're really early stage, but we're excited to build something that mobilizes hopefully millions of people to take a little bit more action to help end the climate crisis. Congratulations. Happy anniversary. That's huge. Thanks. Yeah, it was it was nice to see. I think June 12th was our exact anniversary date. And we kind of looked back over the past year. And it, it was cool to see basically from being a student only, I don't know, like 16 months ago or whatever, and then have hang, having launch something that people like on the internet were actually using and talking about. Like I've never done something like that before. So it, it was fun to look back on. Yeah. I'm, I've actually been a Ren uh, user for, I don't know, maybe like eight months or something now. I might've been like an earlier one. So what's been happening at, at Ren and, and what have you, what have you all been working on? Yeah. So recently we've been experimenting with different ideas. So the way we kind of think about, how we build REN is like, we talk to people who care about the climate crisis or current REN users, um, try and understand what they're doing today about the climate crisis, what they wish they could do, how they feel about it, all that sort of stuff. And then we like to launch just really small experiments to see what resonates with people, like what ideas are exciting, what features to REN would be useful, or what other products that aren't REN could be useful to folks. So one thing we've been working on recently that's definitely still in, firmly in the experiment phase is an email series called Climate Camp. So the idea behind Climate Camp is to, over the course of five to 10 emails that just come once a week, take people from climate anxiety or not really knowing what they should do as an individual about the climate crisis, like there's this feeling of I as an individual can't do anything yet. We have to do so much if we want to reverse the climate crisis. So at least this feeling of paralysis almost. So we're thinking about how we can take people from that anxiety to taking action and seeing all these solutions that are out there and how they as an individual can have an impact. So what that really means is showing people the best ways they can reduce their own carbon footprint, but also there's a lot of focus on what other organizations could they support to or join to have more influence on politics in their in their country or region to start putting some policies that'll really reduce greenhouse gas emissions into place we'll see what comes out of it i think there's probably going to be a lot of learnings maybe it'll end up that there's 
it needs to be more about education or, or some other avenue that we're, we're thinking about. But that's, that's one area of focus right now. Also, a lot of just making the product experience better. So even though we've been around for a year now, that's really not so much time for just the three of us. And now we have one more engineer to make the product the best version of itself that we can imagine. So yeah, doing a, a bunch of small improvements to the product when we can too. I don't know. I was going to compliment you guys. I think I've saved like 40 tons of carbon so far, but I loved like the onboarding of, you know, do you frequently take flights? Are you mainly vegetarian? Like your questionnaire was really simple and easy to use. I think, I think what I, what question I had specifically for you was like, there are so many different ways to sequester carbon how did you choose which options to give people? Like, I think that's the most interesting part is like you get done with the run questionnaire and then you kind of have to choose what you want to support. How did you guys define that? Yeah, that's a really good question and something we spend a ton of time thinking and talking about internally and with uh, other folks in the space. So there's this long standing existing market for carbon offsets, they're called. So basically, if someone is reducing their carbon footprint by one ton or removing one ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, sometimes that can qualify as a carbon offset based on this legislation that's passed in different countries. So for example, the EU has this program called the Emissions Trading Scheme, where companies basically have a cap on how much they can emit. And if they go over, they get to purchase carbon offsets to make up for that whatever the overage is. So also California has a similar policy and that there's more popping up around the world. So that's kind of spurred this market of carbon offsets. But the problem is that a lot of times someone's saying that they're reducing this much CO2, that they're, you know, whether it's planting a bunch of trees or protecting rainforest or replacing old fossil fuel infrastructure with clean infrastructure, a lot of times there's there's a bit of fraud that happens there. And so carbon offsets have been criticized a lot for the amount of fraud that happens. I think the the UN did some or the the UN carbon offset schemes have been criticized especially I think one report came out where it was like the majority of projects suffered from some form of double counting or fraud or other issue. So at REN, we see that and say, okay, no one's going to trust this if it's like the numbers are wrong all the time. So the first thing we look at for a project is just to make sure that it's like real and legit. They're actually saying, they're actually doing what they say they are, um, that they can, that there's reason to, to trust them, I guess. And then we have to think about, okay, if someone lands on our website and they're looking at our projects for five minutes how are we going to convince them that this is a real effective program? And I think the best way to do that is just to be really, really transparent and open and share as much as we can from each project. So our most popular project today is called Community Tree Planting on the site. It's in partnership with an organization that works with subsistence farmers in East Africa and pays them for trees that they grow. So there's this practice of agroforestry where you're planting trees on cropland that does has lots of ecosystem benefits to like biodiversity, also benefits to the for the farmer. In some studies, it's increased yields significantly. 
And of course, growing those trees is sequestering carbon. So we partner with this project in East Africa, and they send photos of the trees periodically, as well as measurements of the actual tree trunks. And all that information is made available online. It's tied to GPS coordinates. It's tied to specific farmers. And with that level of transparency, where it's like anyone could go themselves and audit this, I think that's the level of transparency we need to be at with with all the projects we have on REN. It's still a work in progress. I think there's a lot more we can be doing and that we're working on kind of in the pipeline to be more transparent. But that's a huge focus when selecting projects because of the because trust is so important here. I was just going to mention a couple other attributes we look at. Of course, the the cost of the project is super important. So we try to be pretty effective, maximizing how much CO2 we're sequestering or preventing compared to how much funding the project needs. And also, we're excited for projects that can maybe scale up their approach a bit. So maybe we're helping them get off the ground a little bit. That's that's really cool and exciting. And hopefully we'll see some of the projects we're supporting today to continue to grow and grow and grow and eventually sequester, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of tons of CO2. Yeah, I was interested to know if there's any projects that you're planning to add to the system soon, or uh, or if there's anything in the space that you're particularly excited about that, that you want Ren to get involved with supporting. Yeah, there's so much I'm excited about right now. So one project we recently added is called the the Future Forest Company. They work in the UK and create these ecosystems, basically like a a forest ecosystem where they also grow pigs. They can sell pig products like pork and also forest products like birch syrup, certain types of wood. With their sort of model of getting funding partly from carbon credits, getting funding partly from the products they produce, it's fairly cost-effective for a country like the UK, where land is really expensive in the UK compared to other places in the world. But on the flip side, the UK has, you know, really strong rule of law. There our partners, they are able to make pretty strong guarantees about like land ownership and the future of that land ownership. But they also do some really cool things like spreading biochar on their forests. So basically taking this, it's pretty much charcoal, which is mostly carbon, putting that on the forest floor and spreading that. And that's sequestering the carbon from the charcoal, but also helps the trees grow faster. It's kind of like a, it increases water retention there. And they're more recently there, we're, we're, we're seeing them experiment with something called enhanced mineral weathering, which is taking these rocks that react with the atmosphere to sequester CO2. So basically, I forget the exact chemical formula, but this rock just reacts with CO2 in the air or sometimes in water. And the CO2 gets sequestered, I, th- I think as, I want to say limestone, but don't quote yeah, me on that. I was going to say, I think it, I can't recall the TED talk I was listening to, but I'm pretty sure it's lime. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like calcium carbonate sort of thing. And yeah, they're experimenting with putting some of some crushed basalt in their forests and in I think also in the streams there. Um, it, it's really early stages, so I'm not totally sure the specifics yet. But I'm really excited about that sort of approach because it it lets us sequester more carbon per like acre of land. And when we have only so much limited space on the planet and there's all these it's we're competing between 
growing food in a certain area or growing these trees that are sequestering carbon, it helps a lot if we can figure out how to sequester more carbon in a a limited space, especially if it's like permanent carbon storage where when you have a tree, maybe eventually that'll burn down. But with something like enhanced mineral weathering, these chemical reactions, they don't really get undone in a short time scale. It's like, hopefully we're sequestering this for thousands of years, which is something I'm excited about. I recently heard about a project which is a formulation of concrete that can be poured and the concrete itself acts as a carbon sink. Have you heard anything about this? Because that sounds kind of exciting given that the concrete industry is something like 30% of the world's global emissions. Yeah, that is super exciting. I've heard a tiny bit, but I haven't done, I haven't gone in depth on it yet. But like, yeah, like you're saying, that's kind of a double opportunity, right? Where we're Concrete is already this high emitting industry that we really rely on. So we have to figure out how to decarbonize that, how to make it so concrete production doesn't emit CO2. But if we can get it to actually sequester CO2, that's huge. That's amazing. Another similar sort of idea is if we could use wood or bamboo for larger structures. Construction right now emits a lot of CO2, but maybe we could flip that and we could start sequestering carbon by using like making skyscrapers or other large, larger buildings out of wood. I think that's that also is still in, a little bit in the early stages, but that's another exciting development to see. There's so many like these early stage, really exciting projects right now. I think I think we're we're just seeing more and more ideas pop up as I think more people understand the the gravity of the climate crisis. That's something that I, I think you touched on a little earlier when you were speaking, which is that one of the big goals of REN is to essentially kind of mobilize people who would otherwise be kind of like frozen, like a deer in headlights in, you know, looking at the coming climate crisis. There's something about REN that is so friendly and easy to set up. You know, Ray was talking about how easy it is to, to just get to a carbon footprint. And, you know, making it easy for people to to realize that there are things that they can do is kind of like, in some ways, it's obviously you're offsetting your own personal footprint is not is not going to make a huge difference. But the thing, the, the, the effect that Ren has, I think, and one of the power, powerful parts of it is that you do this thing in like five minutes, right? And suddenly you're supporting these projects and it's proportional to your kind of general consumer. And you think to yourself, well, that was easy. What else can I do? And I think that there's kind of like a movement happening in in the space a little bit that is around trying to empower people and have them feel like less hopeless in what is like a terrifying future that we're all staring into. Can you speak more to that? You know, like enabling people and mobilizing people and making them feel like less scared. Yeah, I think the climate crisis has this really interesting tension, or I should say, communication around the climate crisis has this tension where. On the one hand, people need to understand that it's like serious. It's not just like, oh, okay, we'll turn the AC up or something. Like, no, it's like, it's affecting all these systems around the world. We don't even know how much the world is going to warm. It's kind of unbounded. Like if we don't do anything, then we're, we're going to warm just more and more. It's not like we've started ending climate change already. And that affects the food we can grow, that affects where people can live. And especially when you have cities built on the coastline or cities currently built in areas that maybe in 100, 200 years won't be livable because of climate changes. People have to understand that it is a real crisis and it's happening fast and there's feedback loops and tipping points and all this really, really scary stuff. And 
yes, there's big fires that are linked to climate change. There's increased hurricanes that are linked to climate change. People are dying because of climate change. But also, we need people to understand there's a lot of hope. We can take action. We can make a difference. And you as an individual have a role to play in making that difference, even if it's not about your own carbon footprint. Like I think we don't want to put the burden on just individuals to have to act, but individuals are the ones who can get corporations and get governments to act as well and maybe make some changes that'll be lasting far beyond any individual's life too. So the way we think about it at Ren is, in my opinion, there's so much really good like doom and gloom type content that does a great job explaining how serious and bad the climate crisis is. But there's not, it feels, I've talked to too many people who are like, yeah, climate change is really bad. Like, I, I don't know what to do. And that's kind of where the conversation ends a lot of the times. So I think our role to play, and I think there's, there's a lot of room for others to play this role as well, is to talk about what we can do and make it easier to do that. So making it really about the action. And I think I hear other stories from people who they were really anxious about the climate crisis. They didn't know what they could do as an individual. And then they start volunteering for an activist group and they start feeling like it is tractable, like they are doing something. And it's similar for Ren too. People look at Ren and they, and they start supporting a project that's having a really concrete impact on our climate, like protecting rainforest or growing new trees. And they see like, okay, there's a way we can have an impact here. We can move the needle and it's, you know, it's, it's time to start. Landon, talking about moving the needle, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are either like maybe entrepreneurs or business owners or someone looking to like set up their own studio. Can you talk about Ren and being setting up a public benefit corporation and like maybe that decision? And, and do you think that it kind of is like forward thinking and yeah, how futuristic it is to, to set that up? Yeah, I love this topic. So we incorporated as a public benefit corporation, actually, technically, we reincorporated as a public benefit corporation when we, once we found out what that was. Basically, it's a legal structure that lets you have a mission that you're bound to. So it's in your articles of incorporation. It's permanent. You can change it if, if you want to change your articles of incorporation, but it's not like some company mission statement that's on a marketing page somewhere that no one in the company actually follows. For yeah, a public benefit you accountable for sure. Yeah, exactly. And your shareholders can are legally able to call you out for not upholding your mission. And to me, it seems like in some ways it's like a personal choice. Like, what do you want to do with your time? Do you want to just focus on maximizing profit, which is Maybe a, a rough proxy for value, but really, if you think of the people who can pay money, those are that's mostly the wealthier people in the world. And if you look at the people who can pay a ton of money, that's like the very small portion of of people around the world. So what you're really seeing is value to maximizing profit is just a proxy for value to people who are already really wealthy and maybe don't need a ton more value and have a lot of advantages in life already. So I think. For me, at least, I, I get really excited about making the world better and spending my time in, in just a meaningful way where it feels like my time went to something good that I can feel super proud of. And I think one way to 
to make that a habit is just to set a mission for your company. And it doesn't have to be like you completely change what your company is doing. It could just be you make a really good product and you care about that product a lot and you and you just want to make your values permanently stated, known, and give yourself a chance to hold yourself accountable to upholding your values and the, the mission that you, you probably already care about a lot. Yeah, I hear that. I've heard that this is just a kind of an in the weeds question, but because I've, I actually don't know anyone who runs a, it's a B Corp, right? There's a tiny distinction. Public Benefit Corporation is a legal structure and B Corp is a certification. So you can be one, but not the other. So REN um, hasn't completed B Corp certification yet. We probably are going to pursue it because we, we should totally check everything off the list. But you can be, yeah, basically a lot of times there's major overlap there, but technically different things. And they're also put on by the same organization. So they are kind of designed together too. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, and is there any extra filing that you have to do? Or like, do you have to kind of show that you're upholding your mission? Or is it kind of just a part of building the bylaws of the company? Yeah, great question. So for a public benefit corporation, you don't have to do any additional filing. Your taxes are like normal, whatever, C Corp or whatever taxes. So not much change there. But if you get B Corp certified, I forget at what frequency, but basically you have to work with B Corp and kind of submit your report in order for B Corp to sign off and say like, yep, you are upholding your stated values and being transparent and everything else that B Corp looks at. Gotcha. Also, I have one other question, which I'm just kind of interested in because we're going through this at Sanctuary at the current time. So Project Ren is an online app, right? And you have servers and you have, you know, front end pieces and, and all sorts of things. Is your web infrastructure run on renewable energy or, or green? Or, or maybe a broader question is, how do you think about the corporate footprint that Ren as a company has? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I'll say, yeah, we're, we're an app. We're, we're like a website. We don't even have like an HQ office. So we don't have a ton of emissions. Like we try never to fly for work or if we do, we want to minimize that as much as possible. Maybe we're moving around, you know, like in a car or something that has emissions. And th those are like the main sources of our carbon footprint. And that's very, very small. Like if you're a digital company, your actual, your own carbon footprints can be very small. Server usage is pretty interesting too, because depending on who your cloud provider is, you might already be using carbon neutral energy, or usually it's energy that's renewable or at least purchased in a way where it's incentivizing renewable energy, something called Rex, where basically it's kind of like a carbon offset for energy, where you can pretty you can feel pretty decent about saying like this server is powered by renewable energy. And for Ren, I'm not a hundred percent sure based on our current cloud providers. We use like Heroku and Google Cloud and some other minor cloud services. So I know the Google stuff is all renewable. I think a lot of AWS is also renewable at this point. Not all of it though. I'd like to see it be really it'll be really good once all of it is. Yeah, they're getting there. They're getting there, but they they have a bit a bit of a longer timeline to get there, it seems. Yeah. We we use all virtually all AWS stuff and basically CloudFront, you know, which handles all of the connections to all of our websites is not one of their renewable offerings. And there's like an enormous amount of energy that goes and, you know, carbon emissions associated with 
transferring data at the kind of global edge, you know? So yeah, they're getting there, but slow and steady, it seems. Yeah. And I, I almost feel like if you're a digital company with an already pretty small carbon footprint, it's definitely really good to like look at your carbon footprint, understand it, and reduce reduce it in every way you can. But also I think you can have if you can push for more systemic changes as well, that's really awesome. Like if you're at a scale where you have personal relationships with a cloud provider or something like an account manager, that's something you could bring up is like, what, what can you offer that is carbon neutral or that's powered by renewable energy? That might be even a stronger leverage point than just thinking about your own carbon footprint. It's like, can you go one step forward to push for more systemic change or engage your employees more and make it really easy for them to take action? Like if you are looking out for local policies, wherever you're based, that could have an impact on our climate. Is there a way you can share that with employees? And could you set up like a green team internally where, I don't know, they meet once a month or something to just discuss ways that the company could have a, a bigger impact on our climate? I, I think there's a lot that can be done beyond just the, the carbon footprint stuff, basically. That's exciting to me. I feel like Project Run should be integrated with like JustWorks and it should be a feature that companies can offer as an incentive instead of like a ping pong table or like a masseuse or like whatever tech startups offer, like a gym membership, it should be like, we will, you know, offset your carbon footprint for the year or for as long as you're an employee. Well, we actually, for people's birthdays at the office, we buy them three months of, of uh, Project Rent. We buy that. We use the Project Rent gift in functionality and buy them three months of carbon neutrality for their life. <laughs> yeah. I <Corny>. love that. <laughs> yeah. We actually, we do have a Teams product actually. I'd say it's, it's a bit earlier stage than our like main product for individuals. But yeah, we, we've gotten a lot of interest from companies wanting to offset the emissions of their employees and have worked with a handful already to engage their employees a little bit more where each team member can kind of learn a bit more about their carbon footprint going through the normal REN flow. And then oftentimes the company will just pay for their employees to go carbon neutral, which is another way, especially if you're like a, a company with a small carbon footprint internally, you can offset the emissions of your employees to have a bigger impact than if you were just thinking about your own direct operations. Yeah, it's actually something we did with our recent kind of carbon negative push which was that we took into account the embodied carbon in people's laptops that they were using for work and the amount of electricity that they draw within an eight-hour workday. And, you know, in some cases, we have some more or less uh, carbon-heavy ways. So we took into account commuting and, and a bunch of kind of other stuff as well. We went really far with it, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Especially, I think a lot of the interesting stuff there, too, is just a, almost just about being mindful, like understanding the relative impact of your commute versus your laptop usage and then kind of realizing like, oh, wow, there's, I really can't reduce the impact of my commute that much unless we transition the grid to lower carbon, eventually carbon neutral energy sources. That sort of mindfulness, I think, is as part of the going carbon neutral practices is really important. So I'm interested to know, Landon, how did you how did you and your co-founders kind of um, become radicalized? Like, what is the story that led you to 
coming out of school and just having to do this thing, you know, like that's a, like a massive task to take on, you know, as a kid out of school, how did you get there? What, what happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Honestly, I don't think of myself as radicalized. I think of myself as rational right now, but yeah, I totally get what you mean. It's like, I feel like most people who I talk to who are very serious about climate, they kind of had a, a moment or a phase where they kind of dove in, read a lot of material or somehow learned a lot more about the climate crisis and then come out on the other side and they're like, oh, this is, yeah, I'm calling it a crisis now. Like This is bad. For me, I'd always known about climate change. Like they, they taught it in school and I watched Inconvenient Truth as a kid and I can't, it was on the back of my mind and I, I cared about sustainability. Earth Day was always a big celebration and, you know, I, I love nature and I've always been concerned about climate change. And then in college, I, was, I think I was a junior when the IPCC 2018 report came out and my friends just started talking about it. And at the time I didn't, I was thinking about climate change a little bit, but it was kind of like a, oh yeah, we really got to figure that one out, but I'm not going to figure it out. Like someone else is going to figure it out. It, that sort of issue in my mind. And then talking to my friends about the IPCC 2018 report, they were very serious about it. And they, they acted like it was a big shock, like much worse than they expected. And I started being like, okay, I got to learn about this thing. This seems bad. And yeah, the biggest thing that struck me was this idea that climate change is going to affect these systems and ways that are hard to figure out right now. Like we don't, we can't point to a spot on earth and say what the climate's going to be like in 10 years. And that means we don't really know what crops should be grown where, like we know where over the past thousands of years, where certain foods have grown well and how that's changed over time. We don't, we can't really use that data to predict the future right now because of climate change. And food is obviously just so critical. And there's you know, there's over a billion subsistence farmers on earth who are just going to be hit directly if they, if there's more droughts or more floods or however their climate changes. And I think that's going to cause a lot of like geopolitical instability. There's this idea of like a climate refugee, like someone who's seeking, who has to leave where they've lived their whole life because climate change has made that area uninhabitable. And that, that just seems like such a massive issue. And I also kind of realized learning more about it, it's like, as we emit more and more CO2, we're just getting more and more warming. Like we've, we're not really slowing down emissions right now. It's, we're just emitting and emitting, even though we talk so much about like, okay, we have all this renewable technology that we can deploy or these moonshot ideas. When it comes to how much greenhouse gas emissions earth is emitting, it mostly increases. So that's when I kind of realized it probably just wasn't going to get better on its own. And I should just figure out anything I can do to help move the needle. And my co-founders were good friends that we had just enjoyed working on projects together. And we kind of went down that climate change rabbit hole together and came out of it just feeling like, okay, let's see if we can think of anything that could move the needle here. And we, we talked to our friends. A lot of them were concerned too, but didn't know what to do. And eventually we stumbled on the idea for Ren. This concept of climate refugee is something that's kind of new to me. I, um, I've been reading the book, I think it's called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, have you read that? I haven't read it. Well, so I've started don't, reading just, it. Yeah, I get maybe, it. Maybe don't. 
there's a lot of books in the climate world that really like depress me and freak me out. So sometimes I take a break from those. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And in this book, so this, this is an example of one of the many kind of like tipping point or, or, you know, second degree effects of climate change, right? Like it's easy to imagine, oh, the planet will get hotter and I won't be able to go outside at midday, right? Like that's an, that's a first degree effect. It's easy to conceptualize, but the second degree effects are things that happen because the first degree effects happen, right? So the, the concept of the climate refugee is, is, yeah, I'm, you know, in Yemen or something and I can't farm my land anymore and I have to leave. And this sounds like, oh, that can't happen to too many people, right? It can't be that big of a deal. There are estimates right now that expect that we might have a billion, a billion climate refugees by 2050. And this is not a small thing, right? Like this is a, like a billion people displaced on the planet because they cannot live where they used to live is insane and will happen in our lifetimes. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's like we can't even picture what that would look like because it's so, so crazy. We've never seen something like that before. Yeah, the bigness, the bigness of it is uh, is really scary. I'm interested to know, so a big problem in the space or a big, you know, a thing that always comes up when I start talking about it with folks is that people are so skeptical of the client of the you know the carbon industry the carbon crediting industry they're so skeptical of anyone trying to do anything because there was this period where like you said uh, earlier in the interview there was all this you know double counting and fraud and and you know credits kind of just not really meaning anything but being sold i'm interested to know if you've met some resistance from folks in doing what you're doing if you have some like enemies online who think that um, what you're doing is like bad. Like I'm interested to know what's the counter argument because Ren is awesome and we're, we're big fans, but I, you know, a big part of, of this whole thing is messaging and understanding like competing points of view. Have you met a lot of resistance in what you're doing or is it mostly positive? There's definitely resistance. I would say if you're putting something out on the internet, there's always going to be resistance. So I would say there's a few specific points though that I feel like have merit in our very well-reasoned resistance that that are probably worth mentioning and what we think about at Ren a lot. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about the fraud and the carbon offset industry, I think that's still a real problem. I'd say, so for Ren, we look at a lot of different offset projects and mostly we just say like, okay, 90% chance this is pretty good, but we don't feel so confident in it. We don't feel so excited about the project that we want to put it on Ren. It's hard to build, to be transparent enough, to collect enough data, to be like using strong enough science to really feel comfortable about what you're claiming the impact of your project is going to be. I think this goes way beyond carbon offsets too, but in the industry of carbon offsets or the idea of a carbon offset is you're saying how much impact it's going to have and you're assigning a cost to that impact. And that's a huge part of it. People make decisions about which project to support based on that cost per ton of CO2 prevented or sequestered figure. So I think that's a well, a well-merited, I guess, counter-argument to carbon offsets. Or I won't call it a counter-argument, more a point of skepticism for carbon offsets. But I think that's surmountable. I think with enough transparency, you could theoretically imagine a project where you would feel confident in it. Like for me, 
if I was getting a video tour of the project every day and satellite imagery from the product project every day, and let's say it was a tree planting project, and they had some sort of fully transparent bank account where you could tell all the money that went in and all the money that went out exactly how that money was spent and where the money that came that funds the project came from, I would start feeling pretty comfortable about a project like that. We'd have to do a good job conveying the science of like how much CO2 does a tree sequester too, but that seems feasible. So that's not what we can do today. We're working up to that point, but it does seem like a, a piece of skepticism that's really well merited and eventually will will hopefully resolve for the most part. And then I think there's this other other counter argument that's also really interesting where people say carbon offsets aren't the most efficient way to have an impact on our climate, let's say, like reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2100. And I think that's that's totally true and I agree with that in a sense where carbon offsets are basically very high probability of success and very quick impact. So you can offset you let's say you're going back to like tree planting as an example. You can plant trees and maintain them and know roughly how much carbon you'll be sequestering over the next next 30, 50 years. But when it comes to passing a policy, like people say maybe it's more efficient to donate to a nonprofit that's doing work to eventually pass policy that will have a massive impact. Like if we pass like a carbon tax in the US or something as a massive impact on greenhouse gas emissions, supporting, spending money towards that, like supporting a, an advocacy group, nonprofit, that's a bit riskier and a bit longer term time horizon. And for me, what I like to do is both. And also how we talk about it internally in REN, we like to help people do both. So that's one exciting thing about Climate Camp, actually, circling, circling back to that. We can tell people everything we think that is good to do to have an impact on our climate, not just the stuff that REN does. So in that case, too, I feel like we have a, there's, re, there's criticism that makes sense to have, and then we, we kind of agree with that criticism. So it's actually almost like being on the same page, but sometimes it doesn't, it's not clear from like looking at our homepage or something that that's what we want people to do. So it, that's kind of work that we have, we have to do for the most part. Most of it's been pretty like rational and well-reasoned criticism, I would say. How uh, how is your optimism that that the U.S. might actually pass some real legislation that that makes any type of difference here? I'm very optimistic that we'll pass at least some. I, I think the clean energy standards that Obama was working on that made a lot of progress, and also I think the vehicle emission standards. I think I'm using the wrong term for that, but that one that Trump repealed that at least made progress for a while and. That can happen on a federal level, and I'm somewhat optimistic. I'm pretty optimistic that in the next like 50 years, we'll get a lot of good policies that have a big impact on the climate. I think I'm even more optimistic that we can have local policies that have impact. I think that's very achievable, and and also where an individual can have a lot of impact because if you can get your city or state to push for whether it's a, a carbon tax, which would probably be hard to do on a, a city level, but you could do like vehicle, uh, the city of Berkeley, for instance, is pushing for no fossil fuel vehicles by, I believe, 2045 or 2040 or 2045, which obviously that's a, that makes a big difference. Hopefully it happens even sooner, but with the 
the current landscape, that seems like a reasonable target, I would say. So I would say very optimistic. I think I think we can push a lot of things forward. I'd say also if we're unlocking spending for innovation, like whether that's fun, more funding for research projects that could help advance nuclear technologies or carbon capture technologies or even just like better renewable technologies, it's hard to repeal in innovation. Like when a technology is discovered, it's out there. Like solar panels in some areas at some times are just a better way to get energy than fossil fuels right now because the technology has been invented. That's never going to go back. So innovation is another way that we can move the needle from a policies perspective, even when we're in a situation, at least in the US, where there's you know, it's very polarized and we don't have a lot of certainty about federal policies that will last and have a large impact on our climate. I'd also say I'm by no means an expert there. I'd like to follow along and see what I can do as an individual and what, what Ren can maybe be doing there too. But there, yeah, there's lots of different opinions on that topic. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, well, I, I guess that kind of comes full circle, which is that Ren, I think the the power in it is that it helps people go from doing nothing to doing something within five minutes. And it gets them to a point where, oh, that wasn't so bad. Maybe I should learn a little more about this stuff. Because in my opinion, people having the vocabulary and having the fluent, like the fluency to be able to speak at a higher and more intelligent level with each other about this coming crisis and to to fully grasp it and know that it's going to take legwork and it's going to take you know, understanding is half of the battle. So, and being able to, to bring this more into the zeitgeist and, and bring it more into something that people, you know, don't just ignore in light of how big it is and, and the bigness contained within, I think is, is really, really important. So thank you for all the hard work you're doing with it. And we're excited to see what comes next. Yeah. Thank you for the work you're doing. And I think like we were talking about earlier that, uh, was it Studio Negative? Was that the name of the report? Yeah. Yeah. Negative.sanctuary.computer, which we called Studio Carbon Negative, Studio which is carbon. like, you know, in itself a little controversial to call something carbon negative when it clearly uses carbon. It's more of like, this is kind of, it's actually kind of tied up in the same point, right? Like the point of, of signaling sustainability or signaling the fact that this is something that Christian, a previous podcast guest, talked a lot about. Uh, this this concept of signaling sustainability through design and through communication to just make it more normal, right? To normalize it and to talk about the fact that like neutral is one thing, negative is a bit better. And negative doesn't mean that you are actually out there drawing carbon down on top of your office roof, which is what really carbon negative should mean. But it is a statement and it is setting a bar a little higher than it was previously. So yeah. Signaling sustainability being being something that's become quite important to me. It's critical. Yeah, we, we have to talk about it. It's it's not going to work if we just get 2% of the, the country, the world to care about sustainability and climate, especially right now. It's going to take, take at least 50%. Probably it, it's kind of going to take everyone in a way. So even if your day job's not climate or sustainability, you can still have a huge impact by just normalizing it a little bit more. Well, Project Run is making it easy. So I think it only took me like 10 minutes. We try to make it easy. Hopefully we're making it, we're making it easier in the future too. Maybe one day you'll be able to press one button and that will <laughs> email every politician you've ever heard of 
to pass more climate-friendly policies and offset your carbon footprint and sends you a, a personalized analysis of how you can reduce your own carbon footprint too. But that's for the future. Yeah, we'll figure love, that one out. I would love to see that, that Project REN whiteboard or roadmap or <laughs> how you guys decide on the next features. That's intense. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas for sure. It's a lot of fun. Landon, will you tell our listeners where they can go to sign up for Project REN and you know what, what they should do? Yeah, you can check us out on projectren.com. Ren is spelled W-R-E-N, by the way. It's a, the name of a type of bird that's, that's really cute. And yeah, I think if, if nothing else, like Hugh was just saying, it's great to, to talk more about the climate crisis, to think more about the climate crisis, and you don't even have to offset your own carbon footprint on Ren. Like, that's maybe a step later down the line, or maybe you don't even care about doing that particular step. but you can also calculate your carbon footprint on REN. And really what I would love for anyone to do is just think about their own role in the climate crisis and how, how they could just take one more step, no matter how small, to move the needle in the right direction. Amazing. Thank you so much, Landon. And thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. Mm-hmm.